0: It's back to the future with the return of a National Party policy of years gone by. So, what is social investment and does it work? For that and everything else worth talking about, find and follow usable wherever you listen to podcasts. Warning. This episode contains references to rape and may be distressing for some listeners. Help is available. See the episode notes for details.
1: Hi. I'm Michael Wright, and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week's story is called I Still Have Nightmares. It's by senior journalist Blair Ensor, and is the story of prisoner Damien Exley, who escaped from Rimutaka Prison in February 2022. Described as a one-man crime wave, Exley escaped jail disguised as a prison guard and then abducted and raped a woman. Blair spoke to the victim in this case and reveals some of the failings by corrections that led to her dark day. The victim's name has been changed to protect her identity. So here is Blair Ensor, and I stress some of this content may be distressing for some listeners. Reading his story, I Still Have Nightmares.
0: It was hosing down as Chloe drove north from Wellington along State Highway 1 on February 20, 2022. The 63-year-old was heading home to Fielding after three days at an anti-mandate protest at Parliament, where she'd slept in the back of her SUV. Before 7am, near Ōtaki on the Kapiti Coast, the lights of her vehicle lit up the orange high-vis jacket of a sodden man with a backpack, walking along the side of the road with his thumb out. Chloe had never picked up a hitchhiker before and had warned her children not to either. But in the rain and half dark, the man cut a forlorn figure. She pulled over. As she watched the man running towards her car in the rear view mirror, Chloe had a bad feeling. Should I be doing this? She waited. Shall I put my bag in the back, the man asked. Nah. Chloe replied, just chuck it in the front seat. Two days earlier, Damon Exley, 53, also known as John Douglas Willis, had escaped from Remutaka Prison in Upper Hutt, and a major manhunt was underway to find him. Exley, once described as a one-man crime wave, had spent much of the past four decades behind bars. Among the more than 200 convictions on his rap sheet, two stood out. In 2000, he used an imitation pistol to kidnap a real estate agent he'd met during a viewing of a home in Blenheim, forcing her to drive him out of town. She escaped before he could have his way with her. Five years later, just months out of prison, Exley stole a yacht from the Marlborough Sounds and sailed it across Cook Strait. He then lured another real estate agent to a property in Plympton on the Carpity Coast, and forced her to take off her clothes at knife point. She fled through a window before he could rape her. The second attack earned Exley preventive detention with a minimum jail term of eight years. The open-ended sentence, reserved for offenders who pose a significant and ongoing risk, meant he couldn't be released from prison without the permission of the parole board. In the nearly two decades since then, Exley had remained behind bars, but was deemed a low security risk. He worked in the prison's plant nursery, which backed onto the unit where he was housed, and also as a cleaner, which gave him access to staff areas. But while Exley had earned the trust of prison officials, he was quietly scheming. Over several months in his cleaning job, he stole items of clothing, including a corrections officer's blue overalls and a beanie, and hid them in the nursery, along with a fake walkie-talkie he'd made in the prison workshop. He also monitored the movements of guards at a nearby checkpoint and noticed they didn't seem to check every vehicle coming and going from the site. About 2pm on February 18, Exley put his escape plan into action. he put on a stolen uniform, cut a hole in the wire perimeter fence of the nursery, climbed through, and flagged down a load of contractors arriving at the site. Posing as a corrections officer, he told them an inmate had escaped and to lock themselves in a porter cabin. He said they needed to stay off their radio as the prisoner had apparently stolen one from a guard. Exley then took the contractor's white Toyota Hiace van and drove it through two security checkpoints, his face hidden by a mask and sunglasses. Rather than checking his credentials, guards at the main boom gate waved him through. It was about 20 minutes before correction staff realised what had happened, and another half an hour before police were alerted. By then, Exley was long gone. At the Parliament protest, Chloe heard about the escape. There was talk the fugitive might make his way there and try to blend in with the crowd. But she brushed it off. That won't worry me, she thought. Before dawn on February 20, she woke in the back of her silver SUV. Given the bad weather, she decided to head home early. After picking up the hitchhiker, Chloe continued up the coast. They passed through Ōtaki, Levin and Shannon. Chloe tried to make conversation. The man introduced himself as Damon and said his wife had driven him to Wellington for work, but someone had come down with COVID and he'd had to find his own way back to Palmerston North. Beyond that conversation was muted about an hour after picking up the hitchhiker near Palmerston north Chloe pulled over at an intersection she had to turn off to get home to fielding this is where i have to drop you off she said you go straight ahead but instead of getting out of the car the man pulled out a yellow handled knife with an eight inch blade i don't want to scare you but have you heard about the escaped prisoner he said you're not dropping me here. You're going to drive me to Hunterville, and I'm going to have sex with you. Chloe's mind raced. This is not real, she thought. There's one escaped prisoner and five million people in New Zealand, and I'm the one who had to pick this bastard up. She contemplated jumping out of the car and making a run for it, but she had a sore leg from arthritis, and she knew the man, Damon Exley, would likely catch her quickly. I don't think I could have sex with you, she said. That's what this is for, he replied, brandishing the knife. I've gutted things before, and I'll do it again. Fearing for her life, Chloe complied. She started driving toward Hunterville. Along the way, she tried to be friendly, so as not to aggravate the situation. She asked Exley about his escape from prison. I won't be going back there ever he said, after filling her in on some of the details. After rolling a cigarette, she asked if she could smoke some cannabis, which she had with her to help her sleep, to calm her nerves. Oh, I haven't had any of that for ages, he said. Can I have some? Help yourself, she said. After toking on the pipe, Ixley became drowsy and nearly fell asleep. But near Sanson, he was startled awake. Pull over, he said. Pull over in the next quiet street. Chloe had a friend who lived nearby, but didn't want to risk her becoming involved. Instead, she drove to the local cemetery and parked in a secluded spot. Exley told Chloe to get in the back of her car, where her bedding was. She complied. She felt she had little choice. You can live through this if you do what you're told, she thought. As Exley raped her, Chloe felt sick. When it was over, he hopped in the driver's seat. What are we doing now? she asked. Exley's plans had changed. He wanted to go to Masterton. Not knowing the way, he agreed she could drive him there. In Ashurst, they stopped at a dairy for food. Chloe went inside. She thought about raising the alarm, but the nearest police station was 20 minutes away and she feared the woman behind the counter would make a scene. Instead, she bought a sandwich and a sausage roll and went back to the car. The journey to Macedon took Chloe and Exley to Woodville, and then south down State Highway 2. Exley pulled out a piece of paper from the elastic in his underwear with two numbers scrawled on it, and asked Chloe if he could use her phone. Calls to both went unanswered. Exley later told Chloe he had more than $200,000 in a foreign bank account and was paying two men to help him disappear. They were supposed to meet him in Masterton in a white van, then take him to the Coromandel where Exley planned to steal a boat and head out to sea. As they drove, Chloe thought of nothing but escape. But every time she came up with a plan, she thought of Exley's knife and the consequences of failure. Instead, she made nice. In Paihiatua, she warned Exley about the police station they were going to pass and told him to pull his face mask up. She felt him relax, like he believed she was trying to help him. By the time they arrived in Masterton, Exley still hadn't heard from the two men. They circled the town for more than an hour, waiting for a call. About midday, Chloe suggested they find a laundrette so she could dry Exley's clothes for him. Good idea, he said. They pulled up outside liquid laundromat on Jackson Street. They joked about a person driving a car towing a trailer who was trying to secure a park. Chloe could feel Exley's guard slipping. Exley didn't want to be seen, so he sent her into the laundromat alone with his clothes. The machine said she needed $3, so she returned to her car to get some coins when she went back into the laundromat. A man was there. Chloe grabbed him by the arm. Please, please, you need to help me. I've got this man in the car. He's the escaped prisoner and he's raped me. I really don't think he's gonna let me go. The man looked at her like she was nuts, but said he'd call the police. Chloe went back to her car and told Exley she was having trouble with the machine. The man walked out of the laundrette, his phone to his ear, His eyes fixed to the footpath Chloe could see Exley trying to work out where he'd come from frantic Chloe made an excuse and ran back into the laundrette where she encountered a woman as she fumbled with her card she started crying the woman asked her if she was okay Chloe didn't want to tell her what was going on I don't know how to use this card she told her then The man she'd confided in walked back in and put his phone in his pocket. Police are at the back of your car now, he said. They've got him. Exley, now 54, admitted charges related to his prison escape, but denied abducting and raping Chloe. He was found guilty by a jury in the High Court at Wellington in July. His sentencing, which was initially scheduled for October 13, has been delayed until February 1. Correction says it takes full responsibility for the failings that led to Exley's escape and that it has made significant operational and security improvements to prevent a repeat. However, it has refused to release the findings of its investigations into the incident until after Exley's sentencing, saying it wants to avoid potentially prejudicing the proceedings. Despite this, Stuff has learnt some of the damning failings. They include... Prison guards responsible for monitoring the first checkpoint Exley drove through were in a portacom watching videos, and the manually operated gates weren't shut as they should have been. At the second checkpoint, staff opened the barrier gate without checking Exley's credentials. Elite guards from the prison's site emergency response team had stopped an incoming car there as he drove past. Prior to his escape, a prisoner complained that Exley threatened to kill him. The allegation was apparently disregarded. If it had been investigated properly, Exley likely would have been reclassified as high security and stripped of his privileges, foiling his jailbreak. Despite the horrendous consequences of Exley's escape, no one involved in the failings was sacked. The prison director, Viv Whelan, on leave at the time, offered a resignation. It wasn't accepted. Three staff were sanctioned, while another quit. Our reviews of the incident determined that the escape occurred as a result of systemic failures, Corrections Deputy Commissioner Bridget Keane told Stuff when asked why no one had lost their job. It was not the result of one sole cause, factor or person, she said. Chloe, now 65, is angry. She can't believe the incompetence that allowed Exley's escape and plans to take legal action against Corrections. The way Exley told it to me, the escape was just so easy, she said. If they'd checked every car, that man would not have got out. I think it's a pretty open and shut case. Recently, Chloe was finally contacted by Corrections Victim Information Manager, more than 18 months after her ordeal, offering a meeting with Keane. It was the first time anyone from the department had been in touch with her since the attack. The call came after corrections fielded inquiries from Stuff, questioning the lack of communication, which meant Chloe still didn't know the full circumstances of Exley's escape and felt like officials didn't care. In a statement to Stuff, Keane said the department always intended to be completely transparent with Chloe about the significant failings that allowed the prison break. Officials had planned to do this at the conclusion of the court case before informing the public, she said. We got this wrong, we should have reached out to the survivor earlier. We made an incorrect assumption about the timing of our contact without checking what she wanted and we caused further harm as a result. For this, we are sorry. On behalf of Corrections, I would like to express our heartfelt apology to the survivor of this person's horrific reoffending. I cannot imagine the pain and trauma that she has faced as a result of this crime. When she meets Chloe, Keane hopes to listen to her and apologise for our failings, discuss the findings of our reviews, and answer any questions she has. While we know there is nothing we can do to fix the trauma and harm caused, we would like to discuss how we can support her, including scope for compensation. Even now, Chloe has vivid nightmares about her ordeal. She can't shake the image of Exley holding the yellow handled knife. It was six hours of absolute torment, not knowing whether I was going to live or die. Honestly, I've never felt so close to death in my life. Chloe now finds it hard to trust people. She is scared to leave her home. Instead of visiting friends, she sits in a shed at her property. She's been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, lost 21 kilograms, has panic attacks, and has ground down her teeth from anxiety. Exley's left me with a life sentence. I can never be what I was before all this happened. Why the hell, when you get five minutes free, would you go and attack somebody else? Why wreck someone else's bloody life when you've just got your freedom? During the trial, Exley's defence argued Chloe's actions showed she was happy to take him where he wanted to go, and the sex they had was consensual. The knife which he'd acquired after abandoning the stolen white van on the Carpety coast, was needed in case he went bush and was never used to threaten her, they claimed. Chloe is offended by this lie. Throughout the ordeal, she was petrified. She was told at the protest Exley was dangerous, and he made it clear he was prepared to use the knife if she didn't comply with his demands. She felt she had no choice but to let him rape her and pretend to be his friend. I went into survival mode. It was my only way to escape. Chloe is aware people have questioned why she didn't take earlier opportunities to get away. Because of her arthritis, trying to outrun him was never an option, she says, and she didn't want anyone else to get hurt. When they stopped at a park in Masterton, for instance, there were women and children nearby. Instead, she bided her time until she encountered someone she felt would stay calm, and raise the alarm without Exley knowing. Chloe is disappointed the sentencing has been delayed. It's kept this bloody thing in my head. People say, don't worry about it, he's in jail. Yes, I know, but it's still not final until we get that sentencing. She hopes he's locked away indefinitely. Not just because of what he's done to me, but there are two other women before me. He's fucked in the head he doesn't comprehend anybody else's feelings. Despite the indelible mark the attack has left on Chloe's life, it will not define who she is, she says. One day, she might consider waiving the name suppression she's afforded as a victim of sexual assault. But at the moment, she doesn't want the sympathy that will bring. I don't want people coming up and giving me hugs and saying, Oh, Chloe, I'm sorry this happened to you. I want to have people stand there and go, Oh my God, well done, Chloe. You beat him. That makes her feel strong. I got through this. I still don't know how I did it.
1: That was I Still Have Nightmares on The Long Read From Stuff, written and read by Blair Ensor and produced by Jen Black. This episode was edited by Connor Scott. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you follow the podcast, you'll get the latest episode automatically. Thanks for listening.
0: If you liked listening to this pod, Help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz/support.
1: Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm. Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs>